the first question is uh, are there hospitals for nuns if so where are they located are they effective are there any problems um, I don't I don't know um, uh, yes my simple answer is is I don't know I, I tend to doubt it um, the let me just say something about the um, the nuns order in, in Thailand um, it's a very controversial subject at the moment because there's a movement may, mainly originating from the West to revive the Bikuni order, which is the original nun's order, um, but which died out um, about a thousand years ago. And so there are a number of disagreements about whether it's possible or not to revive that order. Um, I'm not going to go into technical details here. If somebody is interested in this, maybe talk about it um, at a further, uh, further time. It's a bit of a long, complicated um, issue. But the, the, uh, the consensus in the uh, Theravada Buddhist countries of uh, Thailand, Laos, um, Burma uh, has has been for a very long time that it's not possible. And so um, over time other orders like women's orders have been have been developed as a kind of alternative to that. In Thailand it's the Mechi order. Now um, for a number of, of social and historical reasons the the Mechi order has has never really received that much respect as an institution um, from Thai society. Certainly individual nuns um, <clears throat> are greatly respected, but the institution um, has not. Um, one of the reasons um, is that it's in a kind of a no-man's land. It's not a, a, a like an officially recognized women's monastic order. It's like a, a, a kind of a monastic lay order, as it were. And so the, the Mechi uh, don't get the same kind of recognition and they don't, um, they don't have a number of the, the privileges um, by law that monks have or not novices have which is in one sense a kind of a minor thing, you know, whether or not you can go half price on the train or something like this, but altogether accumulated, is, it gives a sense of uh, respect or disrespect. <clears throat> and, and so the, the quality of, of training and education of Mechi was also for a very long time not very good. And I think for, for many years, women with uh, a, vo a monastic vocation, like a real attraction to living monastic life, um, would feel that um, the Mechi order was not 
something they would like to join, basically. Now, <clears throat> things have changed quite a lot, I think, over the past 20, 30 years. And the quality of Mechi education and the, uh, there are many um, Mechi um, samnak or little uh, like nunneries um, arising all over the place. Just uh, last week, um, some group of nuns came to see me, the Mechi, who are living on the other side of Bakchong. They just have a little piece of land in the forest, no electricity, no running water, just living in little, uh, very small grass roof huts, uh, living pretty tough kind of life, and but very dedicated to their practice. So this is something that's happening more and more all over the country now. So um, the the standards of practice and uh, of mechi uh, are steadily rising. And I think that my opinion is if, if in Thailand, if we, we have decided or the Sangha has decided that the arguments for the revival of the bhikkhuni order um, are not convincing, then as a Buddhist country, we should be trying to support the Mechi order or the alternative to the bhikkhuni order that we have. And so, so that it has uh, the standing and the respect in society and the opportunities um, for women who uh, want to leave the household life and, and not to follow the usual path of, of um, uh, lay Buddhist life and want to give their whole life to practice of Dhamma, that they can do so. And one part of that would, would be to have... Um, Mechi hospitals, as there are um, at the moment, Sangha hospitals, or at least in the provinces, most of the general hospitals have a Sangha ward. I'm not aware, it may be, may be that there are some provinces that have a, a Mechi ward, but those that I have seen in, in Ubon and various places in the northeast, uh, the Mechis usually end up in the, in the women's ward. Um, so that's certainly something that uh, uh, I think is it would be really if there aren't. I think there's a really good, good, um, a really good thing to, for there to be nuns' hospitals, or at the very least, in those provinces where there are a sufficient number of nuns to make it worthwhile to have um, a, a nun section in the uh, in the general hospitals, just as there are monk sections. So that's all I can say about that. Uh, what do you think of organ transplants? Should it be legalized? If so, what do you think of people in India selling their organs? Um, well, some obviously uh, some organ transplants are uh, are legal, and there's a um, huge amount of kidney, um, liver, even heart transplants going on at the moment. Um, the, the, the second part of this question, uh, though, does um, point to 
um, a real problem with this, but uh, I don't think we can go back into the past now because these techniques are there and they're available. That people who, who are extremely poor and have um, absolutely no way of, of supporting themselves or their families um, can be enticed by large financial rewards to, to donate uh, their organs. And, and worse than that, there, there are cases of kidnapping and people actually having uh, been killed uh, for their organs. So this, this is an awful, awful thing that's going on um, around the world now. Um, so the first question is, should it be legalized? Well, it, it is, as far as I know, legalized already. I'm not sure if there are any particular kinds of organ transplant that are not legal. Um, if so, what do you think of people in India selling their organs? Well, that, that's part of a whole, whole bigger picture altogether. As, you know, it's a question of economic organization and, and uh, grassroots development um, to the extent where, where people don't feel that that's a, a choice that they need to take or need to make. Um, but if you, I mean, just um, try to imagine yourself if you were... Uh, you had absolutely no money and you had three or four children or even one child who was desperately ill and you needed medicines for them and, and you realize if you don't have medicine maybe your child will die and then someone says I'll give you a thousand dollars for your for a kidney or something I think if it was me I'd, you know, I'd probably consider it, it seemed to make sense so there are these kinds of economic and, and financial um, pressures on people that we, you know, we have to acknowledge and um, hopefully create a, a system where where this kind of thing will will be much reduced. Um, uh, perhaps a, a digression, but uh, you know, a point I think it's worth making is that the the whole uh, the medical establishment has been very much geared to these very expensive procedures. Um, to extend life or to, uh, to for transplantation certainly um, helped a lot of people. But if we if we look at it in terms of uh, use of resources, um, then you know a small number of extremely expensive machines, uh, which can save a relatively small number of lives through very um, you know. Uh, very expensive um, technology, um, you know, has to be weighed up to using the same number of resources um, for for dealing with healthcare on a on a more basic level. And it's just um, sort of a point of discussion. Uh, okay, I've got, I'll leave the Thai question till later in case. Um, When overwhelmed with feelings of anger and frustration, what are some practical strategies that uh, can use to understand or overcome them? Okay, well, um, the, if we look on, on the Buddha's teaching, something I, uh, I repeat um, on regular intervals, but just to make this point once again, that Buddhism is a very unusual or even unique um, religion, very different from the religions that grew up in the Middle East. 
Islam, Christianity, Judaism, that family of religions uh, have many similarities. They even um, share the same books. What we call the Old Testament in Christianity is also part of the Islamic tradition and is, um, is center, central to the Judaic tradition. It's called the Torah in, in, in Judaism. So uh, although these religions are always kind of fighting amongst themselves, not very, never been very friendly, um, they, are, they are in fact very closely related. And so in the West, um, this becomes this idea that a religion is a belief system, and, um, and we even call religions faiths. So we talk about Christian faith and Judaic faith and so on. Buddhism is, by contrast, a very different kind of religion. It's an education system rather than a belief system. And you, just by opening the Bible and opening a, the Tripitaka, the Padraipitok, you're just, it's, a, it, it, it's not just a kind of a different kind of the same thing. It's, it's like something else altogether. It just doesn't, can't fit the two things together very well at all. So when we look at the Buddha's teachings as overall as an education system, um, we can also notice that it is, um, to use a modern term, a holistic system. That is to say that um, the teachings have to be seen, each teaching has to be seen in context, and that um, approaching any, any problem like this, like guilt, uh, uh, anger, frustration, and so on, there's not like one special Buddhist teaching or, you know, what, like a magic bullet that you can say, yes, just apply that, that technique, and, and everything will work out. It's not like that. Um, but there are three, three main areas um, that have to be attended to at the same time. And the first area is of your conduct and your speech. This is what we call sila. And then the second area is your emotions, and positive and negative emotions. This is the area of samadhi. And then there's a whole area of your understanding, your values, the way you look at things, the way you think about life. This is the area of wisdom. So if you have some real kind of sticky problem or something that's just really kind of chronic um, in particular, any, any strategy that's going to be successful um, there has to, you have to work on all three areas of your life together that you can't uh, so let's say in um, in some religious traditions or something they might really stress the sila and saying and, and have a kind of a reward and punishment system to say okay you should not kill you should not harm if you do uh, you'll be punished like this, and after death you'll go to hell. Or if you're very kind to people and you don't shout at them and you don't hurt people, then uh, you'll go to heaven. So a lot of the sila systems are reward and punishment systems, aren't they? But that's not um, what uh, the Buddha is teaching at all. The Buddha is saying that every time you act upon an impulse, whether it's a, a, a positive or a negative impulse, it's an angry impulse or it's a kind impulse, and you feed that, you feed a habit. So every time you act, you feel an angry impulse and you act upon it, you're conditioning your future behavior. It's much more likely that next time the same thing happens, you'll act in the same way. So this is how we 
create our, our lives for ourselves um, by creating these habits and things become automatic because we, we continually react in the same way to the same impulse again and again and again and again. So you create these kind of ruts in your mind and it's that and you just fall into or just um, go straight into that rut again and again. So, you know, from, uh, so we have this word in, 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 in Thai, very expressive word, key, you know, so if you like, if you have an angry impulse and you act upon it uh, often, then you become key growth. You are key moho, key icha. This is, this is the power of habit. This is the, the, the kamma. So, um, the first step is um, to be careful about how you act and how you speak. When you have an angry impulse, um, don't just vent, don't just express it, um, because one, you are feeding that angriness within yourself, and secondly, you're going to cause problems in your relationships with people around you. And I'm sure that all of us have noticed when we're angry, we tend to act and speak in exaggerated ways, ways which, if we were really calm and clear in our minds, we wouldn't. And we try, when we're angry, we try to say the thing that's most hurtful. You know, and we can, very, we can be very clever at that. We know people's weak points. And... and and then we end up saying things that we really don't mean in, in our, when we're in a normal state of mind. But once we've said those things, we can't take them back. And we can ask for forgiveness, but often that person will still remember what we've said, even if they forgive us. So we, we can affect long-term our relationships with people we love and people we like in a very um, unhelpful way. Um, because we don't know how to manage our anger. So the, um, the determination um, to not to express angry feelings um, through body or speech is the training in sila. But that's, that's not the whole story, of course, because... Uh, if you do that, well, maybe you just frustration will just sort of <laughs> build up until you finally explode. Um, and, that, and we see that quite a lot, um, where people feel that they should not um, be angry um, and then they can hold it in for a while. And eventually when they can't hold it in anymore, it's even more violent than it would have been otherwise. So um, that's just, but that's not to say we shouldn't be restrained in that way. It's just that it's only one part of how you deal with negative emotion. The second area is the area of emotional development, which very simply is developing techniques and applying techniques to reduce the power of negative emotions and to um, create and support and to nurture the positive emotions. Now within this uh, field of emotions, I'm including here um, things like mindfulness. And, and mindfulness, or sati, is um, one of the key factors uh, which will be effective in dealing with negative emotion. 
when you're uh, developing mindfulness, it means you're developing the ability to be awake, aware, responsible in the present moment. You're sensitive to yourself, your, your feelings, your, your physical state, your mental state, what's right, what's wrong, so on. Not just being car- carried away with, with thoughts of resentment and um, uh, feeling um, hurt and noijai um, and all these things. So, um, to give you an example, if, if you are developing mindfulness regu- on a regular basis, then you will notice that before you get really angry with somebody, that there are certain physical changes that take place. And they can vary from person to person. Some people feel um, some kind of tension in their calves. Some people can feel it in their, their arms, some people in their neck. And you just see if you can find that for yourself in your body, where before you get really angry, there's certain kind of tension in your, in your body. And that's your early warning system. Mm-hmm. If you're sensitive to that, then it's, oh, look, and I'm starting to get that sensation again. It means I'm starting to get angry. So before the situation becomes really extreme, um, you're able to, to deal with it, just to relax. And, and at that stage, if you have enough mindfulness and awareness to catch it, when it's just on a sort of physical level, it's not really on the thinking, emotional level so much yet, then just simply relaxing the body. Um, just, you know, like with this medit- simple meditation technique we've been doing of relaxing from the head down to the toes, just something like that, and the physical relaxation can give you ability just to uh, kind of reset your mind and just to calm yourself before things become any more difficult or extreme. <clears throat> the, um, another um, key um, emotion or um, virtue is that of patience. Now, <clears throat> it's impossible, no matter you know, how, how wealthy you are or how fortunate you are in your surroundings, um, it's just not possible that you're going to go through a whole day where you don't have some kind of sensory impingement through your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, which you, which, uh, you, uh, you don't like. There's going to be pleasant and unpleasant impingement on the, at the sense doors um, in all situations. Now, it, the untrained mind um, is very instinctual, and that is to say, when we have a pleasant stimulus, then we like it, and we try to make the best as much of it as we can. We grasp onto it, and when we an unpleasant impulse in, um, impingement, we want to push it away or get rid of it. This is an instinct, and it's the same instinct that animals have, or all living things have, to move towards what's pleasant and to push away or to move away from what's unpleasant. Well, that, that is um, not always the, the wisest technique, uh, way of dealing with experience in life, is it? Because it doesn't take very long to 
appreciate that some things that we experience through the senses as unpleasant are actually very useful to us and certain things uh, which are uh, we experience immediately as very pleasant enjoyable are in the long run dangerous or harmful to us so we need to have some kind of a governing um, uh, factor which can stand above that instinct of moving towards what we like and moving away from what we don't like which evaluates well is this uh, is it worth um, staying with something which is unpleasant what's you know what's the reason the purpose the value the the pros and the cons similarly when we experience something which we enjoy it's very pleasant it's very uh, it's extremely helpful to be able to step back from that a little bit every now and again and just evaluate you know long term what are the good points and the bad points, the pros and the cons. And that's not something that comes naturally, that's something that comes through this education and training. So if you recognize there's something, this is really kind of unpleasant, you know, it's, it's hot or it's cold or it's, it's uh, depressing or it's this or it's boring or it's that, but then you have this sense, well, yes, but in the long run it's actually um, going to be very useful for me to to bear with this that's the sort of the wisdom side but the emotional side is you need to be patient you be, need to be able to bear with things that are not pleasant at certain times so in the case of anger it's, it's almost always the case of a frustrated desire, isn't it? You want something and you're not getting what you want. Is that correct? Have, have a look and see. Or you want something to be a particular way and it's not the way that you want it to be. Or you want somebody to be in a particular way, to behave towards you in a particular way and they don't. You know, so somebody is very short with you or very harsh with you or speaks in a very um, contemptuous way to you. Why, why does that make you angry? Because you don't want them to talk like that. You want them to talk in a different way. You want, to, you want them to, to speak with you with respect and kindness and so on. So when we meet things which are not in line with our desires, the way that we want people to be or things to be, um, then we can get angry. And in fact, I think you can see there are two kind of main personality types. When you have that kind of frustration, some people go uh, react to that, immediately get angry. Other people become depressed. This is just two kind of, you know, it's a, a fork in the road and it depends on people's... Um, personality I think more than anything else but it's the same it's the same phenomena um, an instinctual adverse reaction to the frustration of desire you're not getting what you want in some way so being able to be patient and not just reacting to that and just being able to bear with something sometimes is a very useful uh, technique for blunting the anger and the, the third
um, point is metta, loving kindness, and developing that as a daily practice of wishing others well. Um, now, in Buddhist psychology, um, one of the most basic techniques is the replacement technique, which means if you have a very negative emotion, by, by um, cultivating its opposite or bringing its opposite to mind, um, you can um, reduce its power or completely um, replace it altogether. So the opposite of anger and hatred is loving kindness and compassion. So if you can create and sustain the power of loving kindness in your mind, one, the, uh, the likelihood of anger arising is reduced. And secondly, when anger does arrive, you have something which is very powerful uh, replacement for it. So um, we've had the sila, the conduct, and the emotion, the samadhi side. Wisdom side is reflecting, looking into the nature of anger. And the major mistake um, people make here and something to be very aware of is don't, uh, don't um, think that because uh, you're angry then you're a bad person. Don't, don't create this bad person out of bad habits. Um, this is a sort of fundamental mistake and what leads to all kinds of, of guilt. Shame and guilt are not the same thing. Shame is a, is a wise and useful emotion. Guilt is completely worthless and it will just make a lot of unnecessary suffering in your mind. And guilt is always based on this idea of you. I should be this way. I should be this kind of person. I shouldn't be that kind of person. I'm a bad person that I did this. It's not necessary to think in that way. That's just a habit. It's just a, uh, it's very, very strong in Western culture. I mean, you've been living in the West. You may see how, how incredibly powerful this whole sort of guilt, um, guilt way of, of looking at life is. But it's, um, it's a cultural, um, social um, creation. It's a condition. And it's not necessary. And it's not necessary to, to being moral or being good either. People think, you're, if you don't feel guilty when you do something bad, then you just do it all the time. Well, that's not, that's not at all the case um, if you're following uh, Buddha's path. So, um, wisdom here means not creating this person, me, who's an angry person, who's bad because he gets angry. Um, <clears throat> and it means using the thinking mind also to look at the pros and the cons of getting angry. You know, what do you get out of it? Long run. Okay, short run, short term, you get this feeling, ah, you know, you just got that off your chest, you feel good. Okay, that, that, that's uh, probably a, um, a positive result, you could say. But at the same time, um, how has that um, increased the... Uh, the, the chance for a long-term resolution of the problem. 
um, perhaps it's just going to make the problem even worse and then that person will want to vent with you and then things really get out of hand can even become violent um, a really good uh, particular technique and strategy if you have an iPod or a or an MP3 player or so a recording function then when you get really angry just go into your room and then just let it all out um, not to a person but to your mp3 player and then when you feel better then play it back and see how see what it sounded like um, then uh, the a sense of humor is very helpful if you play it back you may well find it's quite funny um, also if you're really angry you know just imagine just stand in front of a mirror and just imagine you're, you're telling that person what you feel about them and uh, I think you're, you can find that's very funny also so um, a sense of humor is not um, a, sort of a, a dumber teaching that you find in the dog very much but uh, I would say from personal experience um, a lot of defilements and a lot of stuff is built by this kind of sense of being very important what I want is very important my my status my standing um, in my peer group in my society is so you know you take yourself so seriously and and a sense of humor and being able to laugh at yourself sometime or at very least just smile at yourself sometimes is a really good way of, of dealing with that so if we go on to the uh, more profound uh, practices of vipassana this is the way you you completely uproot um, things like anger so that they completely disappear and never come back again I mean that to to at least acknowledge that this is possible even if you're a long way away from there but when the mind is very peaceful with samadhi and you start to look at the nature of the body and mind you begin to see the the way that all phenomena including negative emotions are conditioned that they don't have any kind of essence to them that they arise and they pass away according to causes and conditions and this and it's the insight um, into the causal nature of all mental physical phenomena with the mind strengthened by samadhi which can completely remove anger altogether okay so sila samadhi banya all together one package holistic approach to negative emotions so that's a kind of a long answer i know but i think very uh, important I hope that makes sense um so uh, i've actually dealt with some part of the second question here is uh, why do we feel self-doubt or guilt and how should we deal with these feelings well, well guilt i've just um, uh, spoken about um, self-doubt well I, doubt is not always um, a, a bad thing you know that, that um, self-confidence is is greatly promoted you know you should be confident and all this kind of thing yes but there needs to be a certain amount of self-doubt as well I read a, I read a paper um, some time ago on you know the the disastrous consequences of self-belief in American society and they were going through all like for instance the invasion of Iraq um, this, how much money how many people died so on and so forth 
and they had absolutely no plans for what they were going to do after they they conquered Iraq. They just thought it would all sort of work out by itself. It's it's absolutely stunning the lack of planning. We have all these brilliant people and all this all this money and 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 the most powerful country in the world and the most incompetent uh, imaginable. Um, kinds of conduct, uh, whether it's in the financial world or in the um, in the military world, and this is incredible sense of um, self-confidence that you know we're right and we're you know we're the best and so on. So I'm not. I don't think self-doubt is uh, necessarily a bad thing. Every now and again, you just say, "Is this really? Is this really right?" You know, it's, um, uh, and that kind of humility. Um, that can that uh, can save a lot of lives and a lot of problems. Okay, um, <clears throat> next question. We often hear about the importance of compassion for others. What about compassion for ourselves and how to distinguish from selfishness or being self-centered? <coughs> um, well, if you've um, studied at all um, the um, Buddhist um, meditation techniques in which you develop metta, karuna, and so on, uh, you'll notice that um, we're taught to begin with ourselves. Um, so we pay metta to ourselves, and only when you, can, you really have that sense of kindness towards yourself that you can effectively spread it to others. And similarly, um, when you have that sense of compassion for yourself, can you really um, develop compassion for others? Um, without that um, wise understanding of compassion for yourself, then one may, may call something compassion, may, may, may be simply pity. So pity and compassion, you know, not, not the same things. Um, from being selfishness, uh, from compassion for oneself and selfishness and self-centered, well, then we have to really ask, what does it mean to be compassionate towards ourselves? Okay, so compassion is the desire to remove suffering. But then we have to look into this whole, whole um, idea, understanding of what, what does that mean? What, what is suffering? So if, if we just take the very most um, basic expressions of suffering, let's just say discomfort, then um, I don't think that um, it's going to be a very helpful um, principle in the long run. That's to say, let's say in the case of parents, and we see this a lot, parents... Um, don't want their children to suffer the slightest amount. But if parents take that on as a burden to protect their children from every small um, kind of discomfort, one, it's exhausting for them and frustrating. And two, if they are successful in a certain way, then in the long term, it's the children that suffer because you become strong through learning how to deal with discomfort and you become, you become uh, smart through that. So uh, a well-intentioned parent who, who lacks wisdom 
may with the very best of intentions try to mollycoddle and, and to protect the child from every kind of discomfort and um, not let them, ha they don't have to do anything they don't want to do and they can do all the things that they like to do um, and in fact um, be doing their child a great disservice, um, not preparing them for, um, for life in the world at all. So, um, when we talk about compassion um, for, for ourselves or for others, it's the big picture, what, um, the suffering in, you know, in, in the whole picture of one's life, not just individual cases of, oh, I feel, I feel a bit hot or a bit cold, I have compassion for myself, you know, I, I just uh, leave here and go and do something else, or uh, I'm bored boredom is not very nice, it's unpleasant, I don't have uh, compassion for myself, I just um, find something exciting. So it's just a, a way of escaping from those areas of experience which um, we don't fulfill our immediate expectations or desires. Now selfishness um, as, as such is not um, a bad thing. In fact, it's it's inevitable that you um, <clears throat> that you have to uh, have a, uh, an interest in your own well-being. But the question is, what is your well-being? What is your your real best interest? You know, it's not necessarily always your financial or economic best interests. <clears throat> so. Um, but being um, interested in and devoted into uh, following um, your best interests is, is just rational and reasonable and um, nothing to be um, criticized for. But if um, your efforts to um, secure your own well-being include or uh, entail creating suffering for others, unnecessary suffering for others, then we have to stop and to, um, to evaluate with a mind as, as clear and, um, and um, equanimous as possible. But it's not, uh, it's not possible, is it, to, to live your life purely according to the wishes of others or um, to do something not to do things simply because uh, people say if you do if you do this um, you'll make me unhappy therefore you shouldn't do it but that that's just emotional blackmail isn't it the, um, you have to look very clearly about you know what are your reasons for doing this um, and if they're you know from defilement or from superficial reason then you may well say yes I uh, although I would like this and enjoy it um, I, it's not worth it. I'm, I'm willing out of respect and out of kindness not to do that. But there, there are always going to be certain, certain things in life where you think, I've really got to do this and nobody else wants you to do it. But if you're, uh, if you're really convinced that this isn't just you know, your own thinking, it's in line, uh, well, for instance, with, with the Buddha's teaching, teaching of wise people, um, then, then sometimes you just have to stand up for what you think is right, don't you? Um, and, you know, the difference between being stubborn and difficult and selfish and, and, and standing up for what you uh, truly 
um, consider to be right is it can be a subtle one and it's it's not something that anyone else can can always tell you it's something you you need to be able to develop the power of being very honest with yourself knowing how to look at your mind and being able to see that for yourself <clears throat> okay just uh, so we got one more what is the point of marriage well I'm probably not the best person uh, to ask about that having never been married and uh, not intending to get married um, well you've probably got some some ideas about this yourself let me let me just offer my opinion um, think that uh, living uh, well of one of the most natural desires of human beings is to have children and if you desire to have children then um, marriage is usually a good place to start uh, um, society generally um, uh, approves of people getting married first before having children um, so um, if and, and certainly in, in, in Buddhism it's not criticized of course you know if there weren't people having children then the human race would disappear so um, relationships loving relationships um, in which uh, you can find a partner who um, you would like um, to have children with bring children um, that's that's a very legitimate reason for getting married I think um, life is is tough it's it's uh, it's hard and to have at least one person who you trust completely um, who you understand who you feel trusts you and understands you and that you can you feel at ease with and you um, you feel warmth and love for that's it's kind of a wonderful thing isn't it that um, to have that in life um, loneliness is a major source of of suffering um, and many people get married to escape from loneliness so there are I think um, certain kinds of suffering that you can avoid through getting married certain kinds of happiness uh, which you can experience but marriage is is also very difficult having children and raising children is difficult and so there are a lot of challenges involved in that as well it's not you know in stories and 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 so on the, uh, the marriage is the, the last line you know and they get uh, the last scene in the book or the movie is you know in the church and the, and throwing the confetti and going off on the honeymoon and then they sort of live happily ever after <laughs> but but you know of course in in real life that's not not the end it's just the beginning so um, so I think marriage is you know it's, it's a question of the value of, of stable um, long-term uh, intimate relations and um, there's there are a lot of um, pros and there are a lot of cons for that and I think each person um, needs to work out for themselves and of course the vast majority nine ninety-five. 99 people out of 100 would prefer that um, to living alone um, I'm, I'm the one in a hundred that uh, <laughs> prefers living alone 